0: religious hypocrisy. David pointed out um, this word hypocrite that's used in the Greek um, as actually a Greek drama term. It's about somebody who wears a mask um, is is where it came from and it applied to an actor on a stage and uh, since then you know an actor pretends to be somebody that he's really not. That idea hypocrite was applied metaphorically to any person who acts the part but isn't really that way in life. And isn't that pretty much how we use it today as well? A hypocrite is someone who, who acts one way, but that's different than the way that they are other times, or not they, they act two different ways. Um, the Greek word that's used for that is, used, is found 17 times in the New Testament. All of them are in the Gospels. Seven of them are in Matthew's Gospel. Um, in fact, seven of them are in this exact chapter. There's eight in Matthew's Gospel. Seven of them are in this chapter. Um, So it's not a topic that's talked about a lot. And most of the times when it's talked about, it's in this passage and a few others, very few others like it in the Gospels. The root word for it means to judge or pass judgment. I think it's a pretty good understanding when you put those two together to judge or pass judgment on someone who is pretending to be something that they're not. Isn't that what we do when we call somebody a hypocrite? We're passing judgment on them. In this passage, Jesus is literally passing judgment on the religious leaders because they're pretending to be something that they're not. And he's just calling them out. It's the most blunt Jesus has been to date. He would teach parables about them. And as he was teaching, the the religious leaders would go, oh, wait a minute, he's talking about us. Well, in this case, there is no mistaking it. He started out in chapter 23 speaking to his disciples. And then he looks at the scribes and Pharisees and he launches into these seven statements against them, the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he just starts right out with that, seven times directly aimed at the religious leaders. How many of you like confrontation? Yeah, very few of us do. If you're watching online because you saw the title Religious Hypocrites and you're hoping to get some great materials to strengthen your position against religious people who are hypocrites, you're you're probably in the right place. Um, Stay with the video, because you'll probably get something out of this. However, realize that in watching the videos to get ammunition to point out what's wrong in other people, you really join the ranks of the rest of us hypocrites. So keep watching. Hang out with us. Um, There's an inherent problem with preaching this topic, isn't there? Which of us is consistent enough in our own lives to be able to stand confidently before others and talk about being, not being a hypocrite, right? Let's just be honest about that. No one can do that unless they're perfect, which is why I'm glad that Jesus spoke it and I can read his words because only he was perfect, only he was without hypocrisy. And that means that this morning as I share this topic, this topic needs to convict me as much as it does you. And I have no right to stand here and to judge other than I am sharing the words of Jesus with you and there's certainly no merit in my own that gives me the right to make these statements. It's Jesus who said them and his message is for all of us to hear. So I don't want you to feel that as I'm sharing these messages that I'm coming across as somebody who's got it all together, gets it right perfectly all the time and is telling you what's wrong with you. I'm up here as a brother in Christ who is trying to live for God but doesn't always get it right and is convinced and convicted that we need to be very much introspective about what God wants out of us and how we should live, and we need to be willing to accept that from Him and not feel um, angry that somebody's pointing out certain things. So, with that disc- disclaimer in place, let's look at religious hypocrisy together. You excited? I can't wait to hear about what the church is doing wrong, what Christians do wrong. So the initial example, before Jesus starts calling people hypocrites, he defines what it means to be a hypocrite, right? He gives us kind of this formula, this litmus test of what it means to be a hypocrite. And in Matthew 23, that's what we're going to camp out this morning, Matthew 23, starting in verse 2, Jesus says this, The scribes and Pharisees are seated in in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. Let me give you my paraphrase of that. The teachers of the religious law, the the religious scholars, the ones that are the official interpreter of God's word, when they tell you about God's word, listen to it and do it, but don't do what they do because they don't live it themselves. Did you catch that in there? That's what he's saying. They don't practice what they preach. Many years ago, I was in a youth group at Richville Baptist Chapel up in Richville, New York, and I had a youth leader. His name was Tim Baird. And Tim had a lot of interesting sayings. Um, And as a youth, when when your youth leader has really quirky sayings, sometimes really corny, they stick with you. And that's why we do that. We do it purposely when we're working with youth. we, We sometimes say things just to make you go, what? And you remember them. He had one saying, don't talk the talk unless you're going to walk the walk. Now, my teenage years were some time ago. I still remember that today. Don't talk the talk unless you're going to walk the walk. How many of you have heard the phrase, um, you need to practice what you preach? Yeah? Anybody have any idea where it comes from? What's that? No, it doesn't actually come from the Bible. 200 years before Matthew wrote his gospel, almost 300 years before Matthew wrote his gospel, there was a Greek, um, a a Roman playwright, and his last name was Platus. He wrote comedies uh, in his day, and most of them were dramatic. 21 of his 130 um, plays survived, and he was really big on sarcasm and on farce. So if if you like sarcasm, he was one of those guys who would like his plays. This expression, practice what you preach, actually uh, shows up in a play that he wrote um, about 200 BC, is act three, scene three, of a play called *Asinaria*, a comedy of asses. That's the name of it. So that's where it came from, 200 years before Christ. Not in your Bibles. If you can find it in your Bibles quoted that way, please feel free to to bring it up to my attention. But practice what you preach is not in your scriptures. It actually goes back to a play. But the concept of practicing what you preach is certainly found in Matthew chapter 23, isn't it? Don't do what the Pharisees and Sadducees do, the scribes and Pharisees do, because they don't live what they teach. So basically, they don't practice what they preach. Um, A large part of the hypocrisy found in religious teachers, in these religious teachers, was that they weren't doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing and that they were telling others to do. Now the test of whether um, something is hypocritical or if a person is being a hypocrite then based upon that is does someone's actions line up with their words? Would you agree with that definition? Someone's a hypocrite if their actions don't line up with their words. And it's a broad definition that applies to a lot more than just religious institutions, doesn't it? So I remember during COVID, there were some political leaders who said you needed to practice social distancing and avoid large gatherings. Do any of you remember certain political figures that then went to large gatherings and the media blew up all over it? They were calling them out as hypocrites, right? You told us to do this and you did something different. Um, This last month in our local area, there was a police officer who was issued a driving while intoxicated ticket while on duty. You bet that hit the media, right? Um, One of my favorites was uh, an actress who was speaking out about climate change and the importance of removing fossil fuels, who then got on her private jet to fly to her next event. Using more fossil fuels than you and I will in a year, just in her one flight. You know, think about it, right? And we can all find hypocrisy around us. In this case, what we're looking at in Matthew 23, it's not just about general hypocrisy. We're now going to narrow that focus down a little bit to what really we want to hear about as, as a church today, um, about religious hypocrisies. Does somebody's actions line up with their beliefs and their teachings about God? line up with God's teachings. And that's the foundation of religious hypocrisy. Um, Last week, David shared the hypocrisy of a, um, the fortunate hypocrisy of a religious teacher of our day that rocked the the community with a scandal after he passed away. Posthumously, they found out that he had been involved in all sorts of inappropriate behavior as a leader, including um, sexual um, involvement that he shouldn't have been involved in. It's like, okay, that's hypocrisy, and it got called out all over the media. Unfortunately, we have to be real and, and acknowledge the fact that the religious world gets called out for a lot of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Yeah, that's really unfortunate, isn't it? However, being called out for hypocrisy when appropriate is good. Being called out for hypocrisy when appropriate is good. If hypocrisy is not living what you teach, then let me ask you this. What would be the opposite? What would be anti-hypocrisy or non-hypocrisy or mal-hypocrisy or however you want to un-hypocrisy. What would be the opposite of hypocrisy? Authenticity. Authenticity. Great word. I even had it in my notes. You're looking great. What else? Integrity. Integrity. I had that one too. You guys are... I didn't have that one, but it's a great one. Yes, I'll take it. Sorry. No, you're, you're better than me. I didn't have that one. What else? Humility. Humility, absolutely. Keep them coming. Practicing what you preach. What you preach yeah, <laughs> let's go with the simple answer. It's yeah, it's, it's right there. Uh, faithfulness could be another one. Um, to be anti-hypocritical um, in our faith means that we are faithful to God's teachings, that we are authentic in our motives and that we're people of integrity in our actions. And and I would say if there's one Bible word that you could sum all of this up into, it would be a word that we're often very uncomfortable with as Christians, and probably for good reason. It's the word righteous. How many of you consider yourself righteous? Like two of you are like, I think I want to raise my hand, but I'm really not sure, right? Now, when somebody struggles with you as a Christian because you're either like not being loving in the way that you're sharing your faith or whatever, they might call you self-righteous, right? That we're probably more comfortable being called self-righteous than we are righteous. But the reality is the scriptures talk about being righteous and the word righteous is going to show up four times in Matthew chapter 23 alone, talking about the things that are good. To be righteous is to be right standing before someone, and in the religious term, it's to be able to stand rightly without any blame, without faults, without weakness before God. Now, none of us can live that completely, right? Can we just say amen to that? None of us is perfectly righteous, right? Um, So in some sense, we're all hypocrites at times. It's my hope, though, that as we study through these woes to the hypocrites, that we'll be encouraged to live righteously and to make that our life's goal. Um, and now while, while all of us are hypocrites and none of us is completely righteous, the amazing thing to me is that God knows that. I mean, that's why he sent Jesus. That's why Jesus is having this message with the religious leaders of his day. Because on our own, none of us is able to stand right before God. That's why Jesus came. It was not just to call out the hypocrisy in in our lives. It was to provide a way for us to become righteous before God. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that I'm good enough for God or without any fault in my life, but because of Jesus, God can see me as good enough because Jesus was good enough, even when I couldn't be. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with his heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Righteousness is one of those things that is both a now and a not yet. We were talking about this. It's, it's, I am righteous in God's eyes, but I am still working on becoming more righteous every day, right? So let's look at these, let's, knowing now that all of us are hypocrites at times, that none of us is fully righteous, but the goal is to become more righteous and less hypocritical, and that Jesus came to make it so that we could all be righteous, but he's still addressing those that are religious because of the way that they're living is not lining up with God's word. Let's look at these seven woes that he has to the religious leaders of his day. First one, hypocrisy number one, Matthew twenty-three thirteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Okay, what does that mean? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the door for people entering the kingdom of God. The job of the religious leaders was to help people know God. The, the priests were established to be the mediators between heaven and earth, to help people understand God and get to know God. The religious leaders, their job was to help people know God. And in this case, the religious leaders rejected the very Son of God. And were not allowing other people to believe in Him either. And we're shutting the door for other people being able to have a restored relationship With their father in heaven through the work of Christ through believing in Jesus they were literally keeping people away from God as opposed to directing them to God in chapter 22 we read that um, the religious leaders were actually even trying to trap Jesus so they could discredit him and even find a way to sentence him to death they were They had shut out the kingdom of God because they refused to believe that Jesus was God's son, and then they were doing things to try to discredit Jesus so that other people wouldn't follow him as well. They appeared in their religiousness to be trying to protect people from false teachers or to try to point people toward God through the Torah, and in reality, they were actually pushing people away. Jesus came so that people could be reconciled to the Father. Something that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, when we, when we basically blew it and ruined our relationship with God. And 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them as he committed the message of reconciliation to us. So, in Christ, people could be reconciled to God. They could have a new, rebuilt relationship with God that they couldn't have from the law alone, and the religious leaders were shutting that out and pushing people away from it. That was their first hypocrisy. The ones who were supposed to be leading people to God were pushing people away from God. Well, that's great. We don't have that today, do we? Not at all. There are some religions today that appear to be godly. They have pastors, church buildings, even talk about Jesus. But they don't actually accept Jesus as the son of God. I would say that those religions push people away from God. But that's other people still. You're here because you believe Jesus is the son of God, perhaps. So what about you and me? Did you know that by not telling people about Jesus, by not revealing him as the way, the truth, and the life, the door, that in a very real sense we can be slamming the door in people's faces? By promoting religious systems over the truth of scriptures, we can push people away from knowing God. By pretending that we have all the answers, we can be slamming the door in people's faces and pushing them away. We need to make sure that we are true to God's word, and that we are doing things to help people come to know God, including sharing our faith, and teaching the truth of Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. So let's go to the second one. So the first one is the people who are supposed to be leading people to God were pushing people away from God, and of course we never do that in our church circles today. We don't tell people they're not welcome if they don't dress a certain. We'll, we'll get that's later. Hypocrisy number two: misplaced zeal. Misplaced zeal. Verse 15. Remember, chapter 23 skips 14 in most of your translations and goes from 13 to 15. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. (laughs) That's pretty harsh. Um, There's some subtle digs aside from the obvious big dig that's going on here. Making proselytes was not forbidden. Uh, Matter of fact, making converts was something that should be encouraged. However, the Jews were meant to be a light to all the nations right? And yet they would not have anything to do with the Samaritans right next door or the Phoenicians or eat with a Gentile. And yet the religious leaders would go very far out of their way, he's saying, to get one convert. One convert to what? To their belief system one convert to their way of doing things, not to the family of God. As a nation, they were meant to be a light to all of these people, but the religious leaders would go out of their way to find one person and bring them in and teach them their way, as opposed to instructing the entire nation on how they're all supposed to be a light to the world around them. It appears as though their zeal was not necessarily for growing God's kingdom, it was for growing their kingdom because their converts become just as much askew as they are. We need to make sure that we are sincere in our efforts to convert people. I even despise that term, but they used it in this passage, so I'll use it. We need to make sure that we care about people coming to know God and not just attending church or being a part of our church family, or our program, or our study. If they come to Jesus and they go somewhere else, they're still part of God's kingdom, and we should rejoice in that. But I cannot tell you how many churches I know will teach about saving people so they could be a part of their church. And it's all about them. It's it's like a numbers game. It's like herding people in to get them into their program and their system so they can have the numbers at the end of the year. And it's horrible. And it's a hypocrisy. If they come to Jesus, it's about coming to Jesus, not about coming to a church, coming to a program, coming to a denomination. It's about coming to know their Savior as their own. Now, combined, woes one and two... um, Both of these are misdirecting people away from God and toward human institutions or programs. You and I were made in the image of God to be reflections of God to the world around us. And when we do anything other than reflect God, when we point people to ourselves, to our programs, to our churches, when we point people to our way of doing things instead of God's way of doing things, when we are more worried about our name than God's name, we fall into the religious hypocrisy Of the first two woes. And it's something that we always must check our gauges against. All right, we're going to move on. Hypocrisy number three. There's seven of them to get through. So I'm going to keep moving fast here. And I'm going to bring up some suggestions of ways these could be applied, but I want you to be thinking about how they can be applied. These are just things that that I've seen um, happen. I want to hear also, I want you to think through, excuse me, what what you see and how they apply. Religious hypocrisy number three, verse 16. Woe to you. uh, Did I skip the woe? No. Woe to you um, blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that's on it is bound by his oath. You blind people for which is greater, the gift on the, or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. And one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. That's a long dialogue. It seems to focus on oath-taking, but that's really not the issue. Matter of fact, um, people that took oaths, weren't necessarily sinning. They were told to keep their oaths if they were to take an oath. Um, The reality was that they were looking for ways to make it easy for people to get out of their oaths. Their society had become so bad at keeping their word that they started to litigate which ones were legitimate oaths and which ones weren't which ones you had to hold up to and which ones you didn't. Is there a problem with that? Right? It's it's just bad all the way around. Um, The logic that they used also placed more value on stuff that we could hold, tangible things, than on God himself. What Jesus is really saying is that every oath you make is binding in that you're accountable to God for it. It's not the gold But the temple, but the temple was the only place of God. So it's really about the presence of God. It's not the sacrifice on the altar, but the altar that was important. The altar is a place that we give gifts to God, both in thanksgiving for what he's done, as well as in sacrifice and atonement for the sins that we might have committed. So it's not so much that it's about the altar or the sacrifice, but the fact that it's about giving praise to God and also being humble before God. And it's not just about... He throws in heaven, making an oath on heaven, but heaven is the throne of God. As a matter of fact, if you say, well, what if I make an oath by everything on earth? Well, the earth is his footstool, so you got he's above that too. And that's the point he's trying to make. Either way, you're accountable to God, and you shouldn't be making laws that make it easy for people to live in a way that's contradictory to the way God wants them to live. Matthew 3, 533, Jesus talked about this previously um, in the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, a fun exercise to do is take the woes, these seven woes, chapter 23, go back to chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, which was the Sermon on the Hill, and find out the comparisons. You'll find that most of these things were previously taught to the people that were on the hill. However, the religious leaders didn't get it or didn't repent from it, and now he's calling them out on it. So Matthew 5:33. Again, you've heard it said, to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or on earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. The Pharisees used their rules to make it easier for people to get out of their promises, rather than help people be accountable to God and faithful to their words. We said that the opposite of hypocrisy is also faithfulness, even to our own oaths that we make. It is possible that the modern church could easily create rules that encourage people to do things that would not please God, rather than helping them be accountable to God. And the rules or principles may even sound godly. For instance, It's possible that churches could condone the practice of people living together and say, well, that's what our society has accepted now, even though we know that that's not what would be pleasing to God. It's possible that our society might also have churches, for instance, that might ordain ministers who are part of the LGBTQ community, who are living a lifestyle contrary to what would please God, And yet, ordaining those same people to be ministers over a congregation in the name of God. When we allow social norms or failures to shape our theology, we become hypocrites. Now, I know that I'll probably, this will probably blow up on the internet. Visit me in jail when it happens, okay? But we have to be real about this, we have to be very real about this. Hypocrisy number four, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. I just love that. Strain out a gnat, gulp down a camel. This is a great phrase. So obviously the gnat being the smallest thing and the camel being the biggest thing. Both of them considered unclean, by the way, according to Jewish law. So you would strain out the gnats from your, from your drink, your wine, or whatever, because you wouldn't want to swallow a gnat inadvertently. They would get in. You know how like, they can get into anything, right? If you ever want to trap them, you can just take a little cup with like, vinegar or something in it, po- poke holes in like, saran wrap over the top, and they get in it, and then they can't get out. They get into everything. And they would get into the drinks and the wine and that kind of stuff. So they would strain it out through a cloth so they wouldn't swallow a gnat inadvertently and become unclean. Because that little bug would make them unclean. And Jesus says, in the meantime, you swallow the largest animal, unclean animal you can ever imagine. In other words, you, you pay attention to this little tiny law, but you're missing the bigger picture. There's something wrong here. Jesus is not condemning the um, practice of tithing, by the way. Um, These guys actually were so religious that they tithed from their their spice cabinet, right? If you grew a couple plants of mint, you would take a tenth of that mint and you would give it to, to God because God gave you the mint. I think that's awesome. That's really cool. Whatever you grow, give a tenth of it to God. That's cool. I like that. The problem wasn't that they were tithing or tithing of their spices. They focused on the material and not the relational. Giving what you have to God is superficial, unless that giving also includes giving your life to God and to others. You've done this, but you've neglected the more important things. Justice, which is your relationship with each other. Mercy, which is your relationship with each other. Do you see where we're going here? You've managed to make it look religious because you're giving and doing things for God, but you've neglected the people that God has called you to and you're not taking care of those relationships. Just recently, Jesus had a, a teaching where he was trying, they were trying to trap him in chapter 22 about should they pay taxes or not? And Jesus said this, give to Caesar what was Caesar's, which was that, gold, that, which was that coin, excuse me, the denarius. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Is our very lives. It's not about a tenth. It's not about. It's about surrendering ourselves to God and being used for Him. While the first fruits of our labor belongs to God, so do our very lives. And to give our possessions to God and treat people poorly. Is hypocrisy. The things the Pharisees were missing are actually named by the uh, prophet Micah. Micah chapter six verse eight. He says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires, he says. Listen, you you can say, do I bring a thousand rams? Do I offer this sacrifice? Do I do this? Do I give this to God? He says, listen, he's told you what he expects of you and that's to treat people the way he treats people. And that's what they were missing. While the Lord does desire our gifts, even more he desires our fellowship." and he desires us to live in a way that reflects him to the people around us. You and I can be blinded by a legalistic view of religion that focuses on hyper-obedience at the expense of people. I can't tell you how rampant this is in our culture. For instance, I know churches that will not allow someone to become a member if they were previously divorced. As if God's mercy doesn't apply to anybody if they've done certain, certain sins, right? I know churches that won't let you become leaders in the church if you have certain things in your history, even if they were in your history before you came to Christ. Somehow the apostle Paul killing people before he became a Christian and then becoming an apostle doesn't play into their equation. but we can create so many man-made rules that appear to be religious. And in reality, we're missing out on the justice and the mercy and the love of God toward others to make ourselves look more religious. When I went to Bible college back in the day, we had to sign a covenant that said we wouldn't do certain things. We wouldn't go to the movies because we know movies are evil, right? That's sarcasm for those who don't know me. Um, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, drink alcohol we couldn't smoke, we couldn't listen to rock and roll, even Christian rock, right? So I was working out in my college room, one of like three times I did that in my life, and I was, I had a, I had a turntable and speakers going, and I'm listening to Keith Green, and if you know Keith Green, Keith Green, yeah, he rocks, right? Yeah, I got reprimanded for listening to Christian rock music while I was working out, do you know Keith Green? Really? This like that's rock. Well, I, I here I'll make you pull out one of my other albums. I'll show you what rock is like. You know, was, it bugged me so much. But we had so many rules. We couldn't do laundry on Sundays because it was the Lord's day. But I worked in tinware and I could wash dishes and get paid for it. These hypocrisies kind of they made me a little cynical. In case you couldn't tell, right? I really struggled with these things. And I remember one time, I remember one time I, I went home for vacation. I came back, and I had my school jacket on. It was, it was corduroy, because corduroy was cool back then. You, know, you could walk down zip, zip, zip as you walk down the hallway. And I remember coming home from my parents' house, and one of, my, one of the uh, deans was walking down the hall. He said, Mike, he said, where were you this weekend? I said, oh, I went to visit. He said, said you've been out smoking? And I'm like, no, why? He said, well, you smell like smoke. I said, oh, I went home to be with my parents, because so my parents smoked at that time. And I remember this guy looking at me in all seriousness and said, Oh, your parents aren't Christians? I'm like, actually, they are, and they wouldn't judge somebody like you just did. The hypocrisy of the man made rules that then cast judgment on others and make them unacceptable, unwelcomed, and make yourself look more religious than they are. This is the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We need to be careful we don't fall into these same traps. Combined, woes three and four, woes one and two went together, woes three and four go together, and they're talking about ignoring the principles of God's word to either pander to society or and, and therefore become very liberal in our perspectives, or to become hyper-legalistic and follow man-made rules in that direction, and in both cases, ignoring the nature of God and the the entire scripture and word of God, and the way that God treats us and how we treat others. And this is a trap that every church, even today, can fall into, and we must be careful of it. Hypocrisy number five, verse 25. You guys okay? That's pretty heavy stuff. you doing all right? Okay. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. Now ritual cleaning was important to the Jews. It's a very important part of Jewish lifestyle even today. And there's a certain way you wash your hands, okay, to make sure that you get them fully clean. In Mark chapter 7, Mark kind of elaborates on this a little bit more. Mark 7, verse, uh, starting in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus, and they observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean hands, unwashed hands. And in verse 3 of Mark 7, it says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they, did not, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and dining couches, because you would recline at a couch to eat. So there certain ways to clean the furniture and the cooking utensils and a certain way to clean your hands. And if you came from the marketplace, you had to clean again because you just came from a place that was full of unclean things, perhaps, and you had to clean again. They're very big on this idea of cleanliness. However, in our passage in Matthew, it says, you looked clean, you looked pure, but inside you were dirty. You were full of self-indulgence. You were full of selfishness, greed. Their heart was far from God. Can I just say that we cannot call ourselves followers of God and live selfish lives? When we do, we become hypocrites. Because the ultimate example of selflessness was god himself giving his son and jesus giving his very life for you and me and to live anything other than that is to be hypocritical now i'm not saying it's wrong and they also had the sin of self-indulgence i'm saying it's wrong to enjoy the things that god has given you if god has blessed you with with good things enjoy them they're there for your enjoyment but there's a difference between enjoying what god has given you and living for those things and even doing religious things for benefit just because I'm going to help this person because they know eventually I'll get something from it. Now, you might be thinking, I would never do that. You know, I would never, I would never do something for someone else just so I can get something in return. But I also know some people who wouldn't do for something for someone else if they thought they'd never get anything in return. Give a meal to someone who doesn't have a meal. Someone who could never give it back to you. In Matthew 6, we were told in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the challenge of this hypocrisy is that their heart was far from God. They valued things. They valued their own gratification more than others. And this is a trap that we must be careful of in our churches. It goes right into the next one in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. This is number six, right? You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, it's kind of interesting to define someone as a hypocrite using the word that they're hypocrites, you know? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're hypocrites because you're full of hypocrisy. It's kind of redundant. He's trying to make a point here. You look good on the outside, but there's something dead on the inside. It's beyond just being selfish. Now they're not only dead, but they're full of lawlessness. Now, when you think of lawlessness, what do you think of? Anarchy. Anarchy. Okay. I heard something else. Criminals. Criminals, yes. Yeah. Lawlessness from a religious perspective would be living counter to the law of God. You are without the law of God in your life. He's saying you have nothing from God's word affecting you and the way that you live. You are lawless. They're living contrary to God's law. It's possible to look very religious, but be very far from God. I've heard of pastors coming to know Jesus after being pastors. They were called by Christians in their churches who looked at them and thought, that's a spiritual leader. And then found out the person never even knew Christ. Just because you go to church, just because you wear the Bible verse on your shirt, just because you pray before every meal, or you have 16 Bible apps on your phone, does not mean you have a relationship with God. It does not mean... That you are right before God. We must be careful not to make people think that following God means wearing certain clothes. I wore my, my hypocritical jacket today because we all know if you're going to be spiritual, you must dress up on Sunday because Jesus would wear a suit and tie on Sunday, right? And yet, I can promise you that there are churches who judge spirituality based upon the way that you dress or your haircut, this certainly wouldn't be acceptable. Even though I bet most of the disciples had them. Because the way you look, obviously, is a very spiritual thing. The way that you speak, obviously, is a very spiritual thing. The version of the Bible you use must be, and you must have a leather-bound Bible. None of this paper stuff. And it better be a study Bible. And it better have more notes in it than it has Bible text. It should take you and three friends to carry it in the building, as a matter of fact. (laughs) I wasn't going to name out versions, but there are some versions that seem to be elevated higher than others in this area of you must have this version, right? And I've seen it go in a couple different ways there. You have to be at this church building every time the doors are open, because that's what religious people do. Do you see how we can build entire religious worlds that make it look like you are godly and yet you could be so far from God? Because none of those things are the way to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Church attendance is not. Can I just say this? Perfect Sunday school attendance won't get you into heaven. But you know they used to give out those awards. Is it a bad thing to attend Sunday school? No. But if we have made our programs and our buildings and our versions of the Bible and the way that we dress and the way that we look, if we have made those out to be what appears to be religion or piety, then we have become just like the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Because we have made it appear that religiousness looks this way. And the reality is religion is about a relationship with God and living that out toward others. It has nothing to do with the way that we look, the jobs that we have, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear. This is probably the the number one hypocrisy that's attached to Christians today is that we pretend one thing. The guy who helped us build this building stopped attending churches for years because he walked into a church in a pair of khakis with a polo shirt, you know, like two buttons here and the little, he walked in, that's what he had. He, was a, he worked in the orchards and such and that was his Sunday best. Um, and he was literally told to go home and get the appropriate clothes on. And he said, I'm not going back. I remember the first Sunday he came to our service. We were meeting at the YMCA in Watertown. We were in the aerobics room, which is cool because with the mirrors it looks like there's a lot of people there. <laughs> and He came in and he had cut off jeans with the little strings hanging down. Some of you, that would make you twitch just seeing that. He had like a Budweiser shirt on and a pack of cigarettes rolled up in a sleeve. Gruffy, gruffy beard. I mean, he was just gruffy. And you know, big burly, hairy arms. He would have be been like the, the, the Esau kind of, you know, hair, hairy legs. He had his, his sandals on, his Jerusalem cruisers on, you know, the leather sandals. And he comes walking in like this. He opens the door and the whole ceiling falls in. There was a leak in the pool on the floor above. And when he opened the door, there was just enough of a wind that the whole ceiling fell in. Poof. And everybody's like horrified. And First time visitor. And and all 14 of us there were terrified. (laughs) So it's like, he looked and he says, you know, I said if I ever walked through the doors of a church again, the ceiling would fall in. (laughs) Wasn't as bad as I thought. He walked over, sat down in a chair, and a couple years later, he helped us build this building and donated uh, his labor uh, for this project. But he told me the story about being accepted and that he purposely came to service like that to see if he would be accepted the way that he was, or if he had to become something on the outside in order to be accepted by the religious hypocrites. Think about it. Combined, five and six are about appearing to be religious but being dead on inside, and ha- having a disingenuous religion, putting a false front on about following God, pretending. In, in the Christian world, you can't fake it till you make it. You must be authentic and real. That doesn't mean you're perfect, but you never pretend to be perfect because we are not. Only he is. We cannot teach God's word and then choose to live the exact opposite of it. So that leads us to our last hypocrisy that we're going to wrap up here in in verse 29 through 36. Hypocrisy number seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous You say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. (laughs) Well, fill up then the measures of your ancestors' sins. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you the prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. There's a significant change of tense here. He's talked about what they've done. And in this particular set of verses, in verse 34, he says, This is why I am sending you the prophets. And this is why I am sending you, um, what do you say, the prophets and the sages and the scribes, and some of them you will kill and you will crucify and you will flog and you will run out of town. This is really a judgment about what they're yet to do because Jesus knows their heart. And he's saying that basically they're following up this lawlessness with the fact that these religious leaders who are there to help promote life are all about taking life. And they're going to be doing things to preserve their kingdom as opposed to preserving God's kingdom. And they tried to make themselves sound religious. Well, that was our ancestors who did that. We would never do that. And in the meantime, they're plotting to kill Jesus. But they're saying, oh, we wouldn't do that, not us. So Jesus says, listen, let me tell you what you're going to do. And this way, when it comes to pass, you'll know that I was right and you'll understand the judgment that awaits you for what you're doing. And he calls them snakes and a brood of vipers. And he talks about prophets. Any, this is like bringing a hyperlink to anybody. Is this, is this taking you back somewhere? Who does this remind you of? Anybody? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptizer. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, or coming to his baptism, excuse me. He said to them, "'You brood of vipers, "'who warned you to flee the coming wrath? "'Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. "'And don't presume to say to yourselves, "'We have Abraham as our father, "'for I tell you, God is able to raise up children "'for Abraham from these stones. "'And the ax is already at the root of the trees. "'Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit "'will be cut down and thrown into the fire. "'I baptize you with water for repentance.' but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I'm not worthy to even remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. John talked about a pending judgment for these Pharisees and the religious leaders who were going to him in the wilderness to see this baptism of repentance. And he says, you brood of vipers who warned you about the wrath that's yet to come? If you're genuine, prove it by your life. In other words, stop being hypocrites. If you're genuine, repent of your hypocrisy and make your actions line up with your words. Make your actions line up with God's word, was John's message. And now Jesus Toward the end of his ministry, just prior to him giving up his life, end of his earthly ministry, excuse me, his ministry continues, the end of his earthly ministry, says to these religious leaders, let me tell you about the pending judgment that's coming, because you haven't repented, because you haven't turned back to what God wants, because you haven't aligned your life with God's word. I think we have to be careful not to have this false sense of piety or religiosity that makes us think that we are any better than our ancestors before us. It's so easy for us to look at the scribes and Pharisees and go, well, look at them. I'm glad I'm not like them. Or to look back in Israel and go, well, they were a horrible people. Good thing we're not like them. To realize that we are all fallen people and we can all fall into these traps of hypocrisy. The last woe seems to stand out on its own as a woe, but it leads into the last part of the chapter where Jesus then talks about Jerusalem and he mourns over Jerusalem. He says, you you kill the prophets. I've wanted to call, God says, I've wanted to call you together, but you've rejected me. We have to make sure that we are not the people who are pushing others away from God. As we wrap up these, these very harsh statements against the religious leaders, we find that Jesus was judging these leaders because They were supposed to point people to God, but instead they pushed people away from God. They were meant to be a light to all the nations, but they made converts only for their own agendas and programs. They made religious practices that contradicted God's word. They focused on the minor points of the law and missed the big picture of the law. They focused on outward cleanness, but inside were full of selfishness. They appeared religious, but they lived in a way that was contrary to God's word. And they said they were protecting God's people, but they were actually killing God's son. This morning, I want to highlight just those main points, because I want us to be very real about assessing our own lives and realize that if the church is, if it's capable, if the church is capable of committing these same sins, the church is not the building. The church is the people. And that means we must also check our lives for these. If you want to study more on this if you like the idea of woes and judgments um, if that's like gets you going in the morning um, check out the book of James and see how many comparisons you can find with the seven woes with the message of James the Sermon on the Hill and this message and also spend some time studying the Old Testament for the phrase the Lord hates and find out what the Lord really hates And you'll find it lines up an awful lot with the list of these seven woes. While each of these warnings is directly aimed at the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees, the lessons really do apply to you and me today. But as I stated in the beginning, the the problem is that none of us is perfect. We're all hypocrites at times. We all have areas in our lives where we may at times play the actor, pretend to be one thing that we're not, because we want other people to accept us or we want other people to think something of us. Jesus told his disciples in the beginning of 23 to listen to the words of the Torah but don't imitate the actions of those who were teaching it. Jesus certainly did not condone all the teachings of the Pharisees. He attacked some of them in the woes. But the Pharisees were the ones who made it a point to define all the ways to to best keep the law. That was their job. These religious leaders were supposed to be the people who said, let me tell you how to follow God. And yet they ended up in vain and uh, just empty religious activity that made them look good and that pushed people away. As Jesus followers, we must be careful that we do not create barriers to people coming to know Jesus through man-made rules or false piety. We must avoid the type of legalism that pushes people away from God and we also must avoid the type of liberalism that would water down the truth of God's word. (laughs) to conform to social norms. And on top of that, we must make sure that we strive to have motives that are pure and agendas that promote God's agenda and not our own kingdoms. That's a lot for us to take in. (laughs) I've probably given you too much to digest in one message. In the end, I think it's the prayer of mine that my life would be sincere enough and my faith genuine enough that people would want to be drawn to God. That I could say with confidence what the Apostle Paul said. And this is the last verse I want to leave you with before David closes us out in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking about how we live in relationship to others, and he says this. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. But just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved, just as I give up everything that I have so that others might come to know Jesus Christ, he then says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That would be the anti-hypocrisy of being a Jesus follower, that people could imitate us the way that we imitate our savior, Jesus Christ. David, would you close this